The political circus is gearing up for 2024. Meanwhile, Americans are suffering from the costs of the political elite. Join the Mises Institute in Fort Myers, Florida on November 4th for an event dedicated to the White House, the Fed, and the economy. We'll cut through the campaign rhetoric to look at the future of the U.S. economy, with a lineup including Bob Murphy, Patrick Newman, Jonathan Newman, and Murray Sabrin. Register now at Mises.org FL23. Human Action Podcast listeners can receive a special $10 discount using promo code FL2023. Audience numbers for Mises Institute podcasts are going through the roof, and we want to thank our great listeners with a special deal. Per Bilan's primer on Austrian economics, How to Think About the Economy, has become one of the best sellers in the Mises store, and we're giving it away for free to our podcast listeners. This short book is a great refresher for understanding proper economic logic and also a perfect introduction to economics for friends and family. So get your free copy of How to Think About the Economy by visiting Mises.org slash H-A-Pod-Free. That's H-A, like human action, pod-free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Jonathan, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me back. Well, folks, this is going to be another nerdy deep dive, but this is why you listen to this podcast. So uh, recently on this very podcast, I had another Mises uh friend Alex Pollock on, and we talked about his work highlighting the fact that the Federal Reserve is technically insolvent, meaning that um, there, you know there's different ways of, of, of those terms, and that's what we went over in that episode. But long and short of it is that the in terms of standard accounting, the Fed's assets are worth less than their liabilities, so their capital or shareholder equity is negative. But beyond that, um, you know, and we clarified it. It's not just merely like, a, oh, this is some sort of mark-to-market phenomenon. No, that the Fed is actually paying out more to uh, its creditors than it is receiving an income from its assets. And so, you know, it, even in the conventional sense, like the Fed is losing money, and we don't just mean $75 here, $84 there. We're talking uh, in the hundreds of billions at an annual basis. And so we went through all that. And then and I got a lot of good feedback on that episode. And then even though as I was driving around listening to it, and you might say you listen to your own. I was listening for the guest. I don't listen to myself, but I just like to, because when I'm doing these things, I'm, I'm jotting notes for in case you don't realize, folks, maybe you don't host the Human Action Podcast, but I do. And you're like thinking ahead of what am I going to ask next? So you can't fully appreciate, especially if the guest is saying something new. Sometimes it's like I got to be multitasking. So I like to listen to it afterward to make sure I didn't miss anything. And I noticed there were a couple points where even I, knowing what Alex was talking about, realized, oh yeah, if you didn't know this stuff, it would that would sound confusing. And so that's um, what I want to go over in this episode. And then also Jonathan has some um, some good thoughts that he sent to me after that episode with Alex Pollock. And so I wanted to have Jonathan on to, to share those with you folks as well. So um, I think the, the big thing, well, why don't I, is just as a starting point, um, and Jonathan has looked at this as well, I found a really good 
uh, report that kind of crystallized a lot of these numbers. Now, this was these numbers were accurate as of January 2023, but I mean this this picture is still the same. If anything, they might have even gotten a little bit worse. Uh, this is from the Mercatus Center. Uh, Andy Levin and Bill Nelson are the authors. And let me just read a little bit because uh, I like the way that they motivate this. It might seem extraordinary that a U.S. government institution could conduct any program that is likely to incur a cost of nearly one trillion dollars to taxpayers. And it might seem equally extraordinary that such a program could be undertaken without congressional approval or even any forewarning about the magnitude of the risks. Yet that is the expected outcome of the Federal Reserve's securities purchase program known as QE4, its fourth round of quantitative easing. Okay, and then they're going and they say specifically from March 2020, right, when all the COVID stuff kicked in and the Fed began yet another round of extraordinary activity through March 2022. The Federal Reserve purchased about $4.6 trillion in securities and funded those purchases with a corresponding increase in its overnight interest-bearing liabilities of bank reserves and reverse repurchase agreements, or reverse repos. And in effect, the Fed's balance sheet now appears similar to that of a hedge fund whose long-term assets are financed by short-term borrowing, except that such funds routinely hedge their interest rate risk, whereas the Fed's portfolio is effectively naked. All right. And then the upshot of it all, according again, this was as of January 23, their calculations that um, they were showing. Looking forward, the projected impact on net interest income over the next 10 years was going to be negative nine hundred and seventy nine billion dollars. Okay, and rounding up to a trillion dollars. All right. And that, again, that's. That's not just like I know the the reason I'm trying to make this distinction, Jonathan, is because I know when Silicon Valley Bank went down and people were talking about like, oh, wow, the banking sector in general is holding hundreds of billions of or holding Treasury securities of which there are hundreds of billions still of unrealized losses. And some people were saying, well, that's kind of, you know, don't freak people out, because if you're a bank and you bought but you know, a ten-year Treasury when interest rates were really low, and you th- you know you thought you're going to get your in- incoming you know income from that, and now interest rates rose. Yeah, on paper the value of that Treasury went down, and you suffered a loss. But so long as they can hold it to maturity, it's okay, right? It's not that the Treasury is going to default on that. The, the expected income and cash payments that they thought were going to happen are still going to happen. It, you know, the only reason that drop in market value matters is if you have a liquidity crunch and you have to sell the asset early, in which case you get less for it, you know, as a spot payment than what you originally paid when interest rates were low. And so I'm, that's why I keep clarifying to make sure people realize when we're talking about what the, what's going on with the Fed, it's not merely that, oh yeah, the, the market value of their treasuries went way down, but you know, so what, they, they can just hang out. No, we're talking about cash flows in the accounting period mm-hmm. They are pay- more is going out the door than is coming in. And the, the critical thing, again, was this, this issue, I'll just reread that, that they said they're going, you know, long on securities, $4.6 trillion that they bought just in that two-year span right when COVID hit. And how are they uh, funding it? What's their liabilities? They're going short, uh, very short-term things, and specifically interest-bearing liabilities, in the form of bank reserves and reverse repo. So let me stop there and we'll explain in a minute, folks, you know, wh- why would the Fed have to borrow money? Like I get how a hedge fund 
could borrow money. I even understand how a commercial bank, like its customers put in deposits, they get paid a very low rate of interest. And then the commercial bank, you know, goes and lends it out in mortgages. And so you see the maturity mismatch there. But what do you guys mean when the Fed is borrowing money in order to go buy stuff in the market? Like that, what, what does that even mean? So before I keep talking more, let me stop Jonathan and take a breath and give you a chance to contribute to this episode. Sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, thank you. The, uh, I, I just want to take a, like a, a little bit of a step back and just answer the question that some people might have, which is why, why does this matter? Why are people connecting the monetary and the fiscal here? And, and the reason why is because in for, for decades, um, the, the fed would, would earn more than it, than it pays. And so it would, it would actually have net profits over, over uh, its weekly operations, and the, the the standard practice was it was for it to remit those excess earnings to the treasury, um, and to the tune of billions of dollars. Um, I, I think the average uh, over a recent time period was like seventy five billion dollars, and so, and so that was that was standard practice for a long time. Uh, so that whenever the Fed would earn uh, money in excess of of its own operations and everything, it, it, that money would go to the treasury. And a, a lot of us would um, would comment on how that what that means is that the federal government is able to to effectively have interest free um, debt. So like they're able to to borrow basically for free since since the Fed owns a, a ton of of government debt and any any interest that is earned by the Fed from the Treasury for the for the debt that the Fed owns any any of that that's in excess of its own costs. Uh, goes back to the treasury. What that means is the treasury is getting its own interest payments back. Uh, and, so, and so the reason why this is uh, in the news today is because uh, all of a sudden this year, for the first time ever, uh, at least to my knowledge, um, um, those remittances have stopped. Um, and not only have they stopped, but they won't resume for a while. Um, and so it's it's not like the the treasury is now having to give the Federal Reserve a bunch of cash to, to finance the Federal Reserve's operations. But it's like this, this steady stream of income that used to come from the Fed uh, has now stopped and won't come back for, for a while. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and that's something, too, that they do touch on in this Mercatus uh, brief. And this is one area where I'm going to pat myself on the back. I will put a link, folks, in the show notes page. I'll try. I, I wrote on it at least twice, but I don't know if you remember, Jonathan, but the Fed made an accounting rule change during the Obama era. I don't remember off the top of my head. I was trying to find the article here when you mentioned it, and I can't quite find it right now. But it does exist, folks. I'm not crazy. Where um, it was, again, it was this, and it was, it was cool. It was like this sleepy little thing that they released in a, you know, in the, the minutes of a, meeting or something it was like in the footnotes of some re a release uh and i think it was like zero hedge or somebody picked it up and was like wait a minute and they had you know they featured some guy which at the time sounded like a nut job theory saying and what it specifically had to do with it, folks was uh, you know in terms of the way the fed does its its bookkeeping as as jonathan says normally it would it would show up as a you know they because they have to pay like and remember the commercial banks own the Federal Reserve. Like there's actual shareholders in the Federal Reserve and it's banks in the US. And so they had invested capital and then they get dividends on that. And so the way the Fed does its accounting, you know, it's got its operate, it's got to pay the janitor and, and so forth. But then it also 
has to give dividends to its shareholders. And then if there was money left over after that, and the dividend was like a guarantee, like a you know, fixed rate. It wasn't like they, it was based on the profitability of that quarter. And then anything above and beyond that and running the central bank is typically a profitable business. Um, as Jonathan says, they would remit it to the treasury. So in terms of the feds accounting, that would show up as a liability. How much do we owe the treasury this period, you know, based on the other stuff. Okay. And that, that's how they would just make the books balance. And so they made this accounting change again. It was during the Obama era. I don't remember exactly what year off the top of my head. We'll find it where they said, okay, if it ever turns out to be the case that that number, you know, that, it, that if we had a bigger, if we had like a loss, and I, they phrased it in a very neutral way, but they were going to not show it as negative equity, but instead that entry about how much do they owe the treasury, they were going to put a negative number there to say, we have a negative liability to the treasury. So like Jonathan's saying, if normally after accounting for everything, including what they owed to their shareholders, they should give 80 billion to the treasury, then that would show up in the Fed's book as a liability of 80 billion for that year. And that's, you know, and so then the U.S. government would be able to spend $80 billion more without taxing or borrowing more, you know, that or for the given level of spending, that means they could tax that much less or borrow, you know, so forth. So that, that really translated through to savings to the taxpayer or, you know, re reduction in, in how big the, the deficit was that year. And so, again, they 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 made this rule change, though, because normally with a with a, uh, a company, folks, if you have a loss and you have a certain amount of capital, the capital takes the hit. And if it's if your loss is bigger than what your shareholders equity was up, you're insolvent. And, for, you know, and that, and that measure or that meaning of the term. But here they weren't doing that. They were saying, no, if we have a big loss, we, you know, if we lose 100 billion, we're not going to have that wipe out our capital. Instead, we're going to say what we owe the Treasury this period is negative 100 billion dollars. And that doesn't mean, as Jonathan was saying, that, oh, so that means the taxpayers got to kick in and, and literally give the Fed a 100 billion dollar loan. No, they were just going to carry that forward. And then if they had a profitable, you know, next year where they normally would have remitted 40 billion, well, then that negative 100 billion they owed the Treasury would go down to negative sixty billion, and they would work it off over time. And so that's what in these, this Mercatus paper. That's what they're saying. They're, the, they think the Fed's going to do when they're saying over the next ten years the Fed's going to lose nine hundred and seventy nine billion dollars. It's they're going to be carrying that on their balance sheet as a negative liability to the Treasury. And so finally, when they get back into positive territory, that they're going to start working off that number. Okay, so again, just there's so many weird things going on there, but in general, no, you can't have a negative liability to somebody. And certainly, if you have losses that would wipe out your capital, you can't just move it to somewhere else in your liability side to say, no, my capital's fine. It's just now I, you know, I owe this person negative $100 billion. So, but the reason I'm patting myself is because back in the Obama years before this was a thing, right? Because this is right when QE had just ramped up and everybody was. You know, like Glenn Beck and me and Peter Schiff were freaking out about, look at all these purchases. And they made that rule change. Some of us realized, hey, are they getting ready because they're looking ahead and they know once interest rates go up, if we're still sitting on trillions of dollars in, you know, fixed income that we might technically wipe out our equity. And so we better make it. So that's what I'm saying. It's not like this rule was in effect, folks, since 1913. No, this is something they changed after QE was underway. And they did. They certainly did not explain it to the public as, "Oh, we're doing this just in case 
we lose $100 billion next year. That's not what they, they made it sound like it was some really, like you, you wouldn't have, I'll be honest, if I had read it, I wouldn't have even caught it. I wouldn't even notice what it was and cared. But again, it was like somebody on Zero Hedge said, wait a second, you know what this means? And then it sort of blew up and more and more people were looking at it like, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's kind of a fun little thing, Jonathan. I don't know if, uh, if that was on your radar at the time, but some of us well, lost sleep over that. Well, it, no, it wasn't on my radar at the time. Really, the, the first time that this uh, uh, was on my radar was uh, when I, I, I saw Alex Pollock give a lecture at a Mises event. Um, I think it was uh, last year. Um, and so, so, and Pollock has, has been brilliant on this, not, not only in, in predicting uh, like what would happen, like he was calling the, the $100 billion losses this year, uh, but also just in, in explaining what are the implications and that sort of thing. But but on the implications and the the accounting rule change, I think that I think that that is at least uh, my interpretation of the accounting rule change gives me a hint as as to what are the the full implications of the Federal Reserve's losses. So a lot of people are saying that oh they can't go bankrupt because they're a money printer, uh, but I I think a lot of the the implications that will will matter are the ones that have to do with the optics of the Fed. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that later in the episode. But that but that's where my mind is going. It's what how are people going to perceive the Fed and does this call into question its its independence and what is Congress going to think about it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. And again, I wish it would be cooler, folks, if I could have found my article before we started recording to be able to sit to read from it to show. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that's partly what we said is that you know, because because there is a sense in which, who cares? You know, you're looking at a, a a balance sheet and they're just moving one number from one cell to another. Nobody doubts that the Fed is going to be able to continue operating, right? It's not that they're going to say, "Oh, it was good while it lasted, but the jig is up. You guys got us, sorry," and and close their door. That's obviously not going to happen. They can create money legally, you know, legal tender money just by buying assets. They magically create the ability to do that by crediting reserves to people. So. That's not going to stop. But the issue was just, why are they doing this then? And yeah, some of us at the time were speculating just to say, among other things, it would just be embarrassing and possibly alarming if it was went around the world and like people could take screenshots of the Fed's actual report on their website showing we have negative equity. Like that might just look weird and people might say, what the heck? You know, whereas if they can just put it and say, oh, we owe the Treasury negative 200 billion now. That's that just what does that even mean? People don't even understand what that means, you know, so that no one would care. Whereas people can kind of understand negative shareholder equity or negative capital. That can't be good. Hey, that, does that mean you're bankrupt? Like, you know, they would start talking like that. And that would if, if nothing else would would uh, hurt their credibility. But, yeah, so let I do want to I think that's probably the, the, the more significant big picture. Thing, but why don't we while we're still in the weeds here, just finish going through, you know, having people eat their spinach. Let me. Let's dwell a little bit on because still, like I said, when I was driving around listening to the interview with with Alex Pollack, I realized, oh, yeah, that's a part where some people might be confused. So why is it, folks? This is what we're going to try to explain right now. When we're saying matter of factly how, yeah, oh, yeah, the reason the Fed's losing money is because they're borrowing short and lending long effectively. And so since they went lent long on these you know, low interest rate and, and Pollack in the episode, was explaining like they're really you know they're holding trillions of dollars in stuff that their yield is like two percent or less like it's crazy how locked in they are with so much uh in fixed income that's at a very low rate 
that has a long maturity to like they're just they're stuck holding this stuff and so that's you know partly why these projections are the way they are in terms of this is just going to be huge losses as far as the eye can see and so you know what why is that and again it's not just a one-shot thing it is this continual thing is because oh yeah they have to keep funding it the way they acquired these trillions of dollars in assets that they started adding to their balance sheet you know when covid hit it's um you know they're they're paying interest effectively on it, so they're keep rolling over this short term debt in order to mm-hmm. make. So why is that, right? Because couldn't isn't the whole point? You guys keep telling us the Fed can just buy stuff and create money out of thin air. So what, what do you mean? And so specifically, what they're doing is, uh, as the Mercatus thing said, that when the Fed, you know, if they want to buy a million dollars, a million dollars worth of uh, mortgage backed securities or something. Okay, they do that where they get the million from it's true they could just add to reserves but that would be inflationary but in the conventional public sense of the term right and so a way they can kind of what they call sterilize it is instead they can say okay at the same time what we'll do is um a reverse repo operation so repurchase folks that means it's a fancy way of borrowing and pledging an asset as collateral so strictly speaking, what happens is you sell something like a treasury to somebody else. They give you some money for it. And then you also lock in that you're agreeing, I'm going to repurchase that from you. So I'm selling it to you at 100 today. And then tomorrow or next week, I'm going to buy it back from you at a little higher price that works out to what, you know, whatever, 2% interest at an annualized rate. All right, you're not going to give them back 102 if you're buying it the next day, but that's the idea. So you're you're getting money now and then paying more money to get the thing back. And if you don't buy it back, they just keep the original security that you sold that you technically sold to them, right? So that's why effectively it's the same thing as borrowing money, pledging really safe collateral, but it's just easier to, you know, sell the thing outright, get the money and then you're agreeing I'm going to buy that back from you in the near future for a little bit higher amount. Okay, so that's what the Fed is doing. So th- the idea is in order to raise the million dollars to go buy the extra thing they want to add to their balance sheet, instead of just creating a new million dollars and pumping it into the system and letting it rip, they come up with that million by temporarily selling off another asset they have, getting the money from the system that way, using that, and then they just keep doing that. So the the idea is it it's um, on net there's less reserves being created and just out in the free and clear in the system. And same thing with paying interest on bank reserves that, you know, Alex was talking about that a lot in the episode. And so somebody might have thought, well, if that's part of the issue, if like when you're saying, what do you mean the fed is paying? What's all this expense? Part of it as well, because of all the bank reserves parked at the fed, the feds paying interest on it now. And that's a ton of money because it's a big number multiplied even by a modest interest rate. That's a big number in the aggregate, going out the door effectively from the Fed's perspective. And you say, well, why don't they just stop doing that, right? They only started paying interest on reserves in the fall of 2008. Why don't they just stop? Well, because the thinking is if they don't pay interest on those bank reserves, then the banks aren't going to keep them parked at the Fed. They're going to go lend them out and the reserves can't leave the system. They go to somewhere else. But the process by which from the individual bank's point of view, if they want to get rid of it and lend it out, then it, you know, the, the multiplier kicks in. And so the idea is 
if they don't keep the interest on reserves rate where it is right now, if they lowered it or got rid of it, it would be very inflationary in the conventional sense of the word, right? So it's, it's not that the Fed literally has to be paying this to the people. It's though that in light of some of its other objectives, like that's partly how the Fed has been tightening. It's been raising the rate that it pays on reserves, again, to keep them bottled up, to have the banks keep them parked at the Fed rather than lending them out to their customers at a, at a higher rate, right? If they can lend to a pretty safe borrower at 4% and the Fed is now paying zero, well, they would just go do that, right? And so then that means the existing monetary and credit creation that's already been pumped in would be spilling out into the broader monetary aggregates even more than it already has done so. Okay, so that's just, you know, so you see, folks, it, that's partly what's going on is like the way the Fed has tried to keep a lid on price inflation being even higher than it's been is through these mechanisms. And so that's why it, quote, has to be paying all this interest on this short-term debt. That's why the Fed is borrowing money to go buy stuff, because if it just created the new money, then, you know, that's just, as I just explained there, like, just think about it, right? If you, the Fed wants to go buy a billion dollars worth of something, it could either borrow it from the existing quantity of money or it can create a new billion dollars and that's it. And so clearly that second option, although it would mean no liabilities now from the Fed in terms of having to pay interest to people, would now mean, up oh, there's a net new billion dollars just dumped in the system. So I think I've beaten that one to death. Jonathan, do you want to add anything? No, it, it was... It was it was a good uh, explanation of the of the mechanism uh, and some of the the rationale that the Fed has in in doing its operations that way. Uh, people say that the the Fed has uh, painted itself into a corner, um, and I think there's some truth to that because the, you're right. They're they're facing this constraint uh, of the really unpopular inflation, and so what what they've had to do to rein in inflation. Uh, is they they have to do something else besides increasing the amount of reserves, like do something else that's that's not um, ex- expanding credit so much. Uh, but at the same time, they they see that the banking system is fragile and, and like needs to be sustained by these operations, and so it has to continue to do this this sort of thing, but in such a way that doesn't um, <clears throat> increase price inflation. And so what they what they've decided on what they what they've uh, resorted to is this this sort of uh, interest rate targeting regime. So so back in the day they would <clears throat> they would target interest rates by changing the supply of reserves. Uh, but now they're in this position where they can't really do much to change the supply of reserves without other un, un, other bad consequences, we'll say. And so what they have to do is they have to change these these prices. And so what what they're what they're doing with the reverse uh, repurchase agreements and and choosing what rate to pay for bank reserves um, is they're, they're trying to provide a floor for the federal funds rate. Uh, so, and the, the federal funds rate is the, the rate that banks pay each other for, for reserves. But the Fed is trying to keep that price up. And in so doing, they're uh, causing other interest rates around the economy to come up, which restricts consumption spending, restricts home buying and that sort of thing. So the, the goal, the goal is to, uh, is to get, inflation back down from their perspective to get inflation back down without having to change the the total supply of money too much right and i unfortunately i'm trying to find like a specific number here but yeah it's let me just mention too because you 
made me think of it. I forget what exact phrase you used there, Jonathan, but you're right. I don't want to come off as saying, oh, and so, you know, given the Fed, you know, they're losing sleep at night over the price of eggs. And that part of it, too, is this is a very nice little system they have going where many hundreds of billions of dollars are flowing out in net income from the Fed to the commercial banks. And uh, I guess the investment banks in, in the sense that they, you know, are the ones who hold some of these assets that they're uh, participating in these reverse repos and such. Okay. So it's, you know, that that's real money. Like this isn't just play, you know, this is monopoly money. This that that's uh, so to say, why do they want to keep this operation going? It's like saying, well, why would Lockheed Martin, you know, want there to still be hundreds of billions of dollars in, in military spending every year. Right. Like, so it's a, a similar thing that, they, they got this thing up and running, you know, once the financial crisis hit, where the banks now are getting just hundreds of billions flowing in. And so, among other reasons, when you say, well, why is the Fed, why doesn't it stop doing that? Did you listen to what I just said? They have, the banks have hundreds of billions of dollars now flowing in. So that's why, you know, full stop. But then, yes, there's these other consequences, too, that, that would happen. But I, I don't want to, you know, come off as like, well, the Fed just trying and they've got their... Uh, objective function that they taught me in grad school. And that's what the central bank are like. No, there's other stuff going on too. So let's not kid ourselves about this nice little um, system they have up and running at this point. Okay. So speaking of which, maybe now's the time to pivot and speak more to the broader political implications. And so as Alex Pollack was saying near the end, because it was interesting, he was you know, explaining what happened in a technical sense. And then I said, okay, so I'm sure people wonder, does that mean the Fed's got to shut down now? And, and he said, oh, no, not, not at all. They can just keep doing what they're doing. They can create money. You know, since we left the gold standards, actually, there's no constraint in that sense. But he had also been talking about how the Fed did not anticipate being in this position. That, yes, it was reckless. And that's what these Mercatus people are saying, that what the Fed's been doing is a, an exaggerated version of what hedge funds or some hedge funds do. But at least those hedge funds, if they're going to be this much mismatched in their assets and liabilities, would probably hedge somewhat, like for interest rate risk, you know, buying options and things that really pay off if interest rates change rapidly to, to try to contain this interest rate risk when you're in a position like that, whereas the Fed hasn't. So what they did from an institutional money management point of view or asset management point of view, I should say, is very risky. And Pollock was suggesting they did not fully appreciate maybe how much risk they were taking on. And so then I asked, though, well, wait a minute. If you just said this isn't going to really hinder them, they can still keep operating, then why do they care? And he brought up, and it sounds like this is something you want to speak a bit to, Jonathan, that, well, among other things, it's a political organization that, you know, the Fed is, is yes, it's technically owned by private banks, but it still is this quasi-public institution with a lot of, you know, oversight. It's chair being appointed by the, you know, the federal government and so forth. And so they have to keep meeting with Congress and Congress ultimately can change their charter and whatnot. And so that's that's part of the issue here. So do you want to speak to that? Yeah. So I, I've been thinking about this for a while. I've been thinking about some of the broader and um, more qualitative um, implications of Fed losses, because because I think I think everybody's in agreement that the Fed is is still able to do its monetary policy 
um, s- since it does have that authority from Congress to to print new money, so it can buy, it can still buy things, it can still pay its bills, so to speak. Uh, and and really, that's not that's not at risk. Uh, but what is at risk is is the optics of the Fed. It's it's the way people are perceiving the Fed. And and Pollock mentioned this in in your episode with him. Um, he w- he was talking about uh, how like we could certainly and fairly ask the Fed like if. If you're supposed to be in, in charge of our macro economy, balancing uh, the price level and the unemployment rate and projecting all of these uh, macroeconomic aggregates, and if you're supposed to be in charge of regulating the whole financial system along with other uh, government agencies, uh, but but at the same time, you're incurring these massive losses and you're now a fiscal drain on the government, uh, then like what gives like why should we trust you if if you're earning these losses especially if they were unexpected and, and one question that we could answer I'd be interested in your um, thoughts on this Bob is um, so if if we the Fed is incurring all of these losses some people might be thinking that well what if, what if the Fed is you know being the hero that we don't deserve but the one that we need and like they're the ones that that are taking all of these losses that otherwise would occur in the private economy. So basically, the the Fed is by taking these losses, they're rescuing the private economy. So this this is the sort of thinking that was alive during the the two thousand eight crisis when the the Fed started purchasing all of these mortgage backed securities that other people considered a hot potato. It was like a, this toxic asset that was tanking in value, um, and so the Fed purchased it because they they can. They can suffer the losses. They like they have this black hole of a, of a balance sheet, and so it doesn't really matter to them if they if they're holding this asset that's tanking in value. And so I wonder maybe we if we should address that that question now. Is is it the case in, now that the Fed is incurring these huge losses? Is this something that's uh, like a symptom of broader financial problems, or is is it the case where the Fed is? has taken this loss upon themselves so that the uh, other entrepreneurs and, and financial institutions don't have to. Yeah. Great, great question. Th- thank you for asking that, John, because I, I forgot we were going to talk about this Jason Furman uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed and I had forgotten until you just brought that up. So just yell, yeah, why don't I just read some excerpts and then, you know, I'll, I'll tie it into the, this point you're raising. So this is from Jason Furman. Uh, in case you don't know who he is, he was, He's a professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard, but more relevantly, he was chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors from 2013 through 17, right? So uh, tail end of the Obama administration there. Um, And the title they gave it is Profits and Losses Don't Matter at the Federal Reserve. And he says, I'll just read a few excerpts here, folks. He said, when the Federal Reserve was amassing a cumulative profit of more than $1 trillion for the taxpayer, from 08 through 22, public gratitude was scant. Now that the central bank is losing about $100 billion a year with similar losses on the horizon, critics say this will exacerbate banking turmoil, compromise monetary policy, or even threaten the Fed with bankruptcy. It won't do any of those things. The Federal Reserve's primary mandate is ensuring maximum employment and price stability, not turning a profit. Financial losses don't impede that mission. All right, and then he goes through and... Um, you know, goes over a lot of the just explanation of the mechanics that we've talked about here. Um, yeah, I wonder, yep. can I just address one one small little claim that he makes there? Yep. Like, so why why weren't we praising the Fed while it while it was uh, giving these remittances to the to the Treasury? 
Um, and like the, the short answer is that it's because it just represents seniorage. It's, it's because like all of that represents is, is the federal government's uh, privilege and, and ability to extract wealth from everybody else. Like that's just that's one number that gives an indication of, of the the privilege of being the legal money printer for the land. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's something Alex had brought up, too, that I mean, again, step back, folks. There's lots of people around planet Earth who hold U.S. dollars, you know, like even like I'm talking just actual currency, like the green pieces of paper, trillions of dollars are worth. Right. And so if you are the institution that is allowed to create those, like put it this way, suppose, folks, you had a laser printer that could create hundred dollar bills and you used it and you went out and you bought assets that yielded income. And then, you know, you, you created a billion dollars of $100 bills. You went and bought a billion dollars of assets. They yielded, you know, you earned 5%. You got $50 million. You could keep the 50 million. And then when the billion was paid back, you destroyed the notes, right? Your, your counterfeit ones that you, you made in your basement. So that 50 million on net that you made is pure net income to you, free and clear. Like that's legal tender. Like if you, you know, segregated it and you kept the ones that you knew were legit and, and burned the ones that you made. And so you could just keep doing that and earn a flow of income over time because you are counterfeiting money and not getting caught. So the Federal Reserve is able to do that. It's just not considered counterfeiting. It's legal. Now, imagine you have your laser printer. You have that ability. If you're making money over time, no one's going to be patting you on the back and saying, wow, you're better than Warren Buffett. (laughs) They're going to say, well, yeah, you're counterfeiting money. Like, no kidding. If you print... And then imagine, though, you got into a position where you did that so aggressively and then interest rates were, that you actually lost money. <laughs> right. And then you're like, well, geez, you guys weren't crediting me before. No, I mean, again, as Jonathan said, like it's it's not hard to turn a profit when you have a legal monopoly on the issuance of the U.S. dollar. What's amazing is they were so reckless with that privilege that now they're suffering, you know, right now going forward for 10 years and expected trillion dollars in losses. So, OK, thank you for taking a moment because you're right we and, you, and so p- people might think that we're being unfair like well would you would you rather have the fed be solvent or insolvent and the answer is no i would just rather the fed not exist so it's it's yeah. uh it's not being unfair whether whether they're solvent and and paying money to the treasury or insolvent and delaying payments to the treasury but I mean, both of those are just artifacts of, of the manipulation of currency. It, it's not to, it's not like one is good and the other is bad. It's it's like both both are bad. Like, yeah, we can we can blame the Fed on both sides of the coin. Yeah. Oh, this guy. I hadn't read this carefully. <laughs> Here's another gem. Now that the Fed is making losses, it books them as a, quote, deferred asset. So that that's a good trick. Right. This is so you might say, hey, and that's what like Jonathan and I and others were saying. That's kind of a weird move to make. I'm not sure that's legit. And so Furman says, oh, no, don't don't raise an eyebrow. This is similar to the deferred tax assets on corporate balance sheets and that it reflects remittances that won't be paid from the Fed to the Treasury in the future. Okay, so. All I'm going to say is companies can go bankrupt. That does happen in the real world. So, no, you can't simply take your losses and put them in a category and call it a deferred asset and say, right. Cause that's true, right? Like a company that's losing money doesn't have to pay uh, income tax if, if they're not earning income. Mm-hmm. And so I guess 
Furman just proved that that's why no business ever wipes out its capital because it just all its losses. It just concentrates them. It's up. It's a deferred asset. No. So uh, this is this is hocus pocus. He's be, just being slippery here. OK, but here's the ending paragraph. Praise the Federal Reserve when it manages inflation and employment adeptly. Criticize it for oversights, such as being slow to recognize and respond to the inflation problem in 2021. But don't blame the Fed for the fluctuations in profits that result from carrying out its mission. Blah, 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 blah. OK, so one thing, and I do want to dwell on this more because you raise a great point, Jonathan. Um, so, again, you were saying, you know, couldn't somebody argue like I've seen people say things too, like, hey, um, like uh, when right wingers tend to criticize some government agencies as being unprofitable, like look at how much like they might look at the post office or something. And I, it technically the post office is, is it has a monopoly, but it's not um, d- directly paid through tax funds. Um, but other things like, or they look at how much the education, blah, 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 you know, things like that, or look at the mismanaged social security. And then I've seen some people on the left say, well, how much profit did the Department of Defense turn last year, right? And so the you know their point being that certain government activities, you know, it's not it's not a business. It, it's the government doing something, or you know, what was the profit on the food stamps or whatever? So, so that's you know what, what one could argue, and it's a great point you're raising, Jonathan. So be, before we delve more into the meat of that, let me just mention though, still, even if that's your view. Surely for a program that's going to, in a very legitimate sense, cost the taxpayers. And again, we're, sometimes people use that phrase taxpayer loosely, you know, like, like, oh, if the Fed debases the currency, that costs the taxpayer. Well, no, I mean, it costs all dollar, all holders of dollar denominated assets, even foreign holders, not just of currency, but of treasuries, right? Like if, if the dollar gets debased and the foreigners who are holding like a 10 year treasury didn't expect it to be debased so rapidly in a sense that's hurting that person too. Um, but here, I mean it quite literally that in the sense yeah. that had the fed operated more normally, there would have been this flow of remittances that defrays, you know, the federal government's expenditures. So they have to either tax less or borrow less. So that's the sense in which we're saying it's costing taxpayers. Like we mean that quite literally, so normally something that would cost taxpayers a trillion dollars over a 10-year period, first of all, would, would require congressional approval. It doesn't because the Fed can do whatever the heck it wants. But also besides that, what they're pointing out in this Mercatus paper is the Fed was not telling anybody about the risk and, in fact, was saying demonstrably false things. So, for example, um, here we go. So there's a section in this Mercatus brief saying, did the Fed recognize the interest rate risks associated with QE4, and um, it said a Fed officials apparently held the view that unrealized losses would be irrelevant because any consequence to taxpayers could be avoided by holding all securities to maturity. For example, a report issued by the Fed Bank of New York in May of 2021 incorrectly states that the SOMA, so that's the open market operations, I forget what the S stands for, portfolios, unre- what's that? It's the it's the Federal Reserve System open oh, system, market. Then, okay. Um, portfolio's unrealized gain or loss position does not reflect the expected evolution of SOMA net income. And then this is the Mercatus authors talking. That mischaracterization was not corrected until July of 2022, well after the QE4 program had ended, right? So when I was explaining, like to, saying to Alex, 
saying, hey, I bet I bet some of our viewers are confused and they might think if the Fed just holds these treasuries and mortgage-backed securities till maturity, then really no harm, no foul, right? And apparently some of the people who are falsely thinking that actually – I, I don't think the Fed, the people in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York believe that. I think they knew full well what the issue was, and they just lied. I mean, that's my, my take is how could they not have known that, right? If, if it occurred to me while I'm interviewing somebody, hey, let's make this distinction, you would think the people running the, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York were aware that, oh, no, we're funding these purchases by borrowing money. And so it's wrong to just say, oh, we'll just hang on to it until maturity. And so, therefore, no harm, no foul. That So... Point, and they also just go through and show that there, when the Fed was testifying to Congress in even the reports they wrote up talking about the asset purchase program that they started, you know, when COVID hit, they listed all kinds of particulars. Nowhere did they say, oh, by the way, this is taking on a huge interest rate risk. And if if rates have to rise that and also too, it's not like rates rising was some unexpected thing. Now, they didn't know how rapidly they would rise. That's true. But the Fed's own projections showed that, oh, yeah, we're not going to keep short-term interest rates at 0% forever. We're eventually going to normalize, right? So the Fed was not even being internally consistent in terms of saying, we're doing this one thing over here. We're planning on raising rates over here. You put the two together, that implies a lot of losses. And maybe somebody cares about that. No, there was nothing like that. So at the very least, I'll say, Jonathan, in response to what you're asking, if, like you say, oh, yeah, the uh, food stamp program, you know, aid to families with dependent children is not out there to turn a profit. But if they went and spent a trillion dollars without congressional authorization through some mechanism by which the people running it surely knew what that was going to happen and never warned anybody, that would still be a red flag. And so at the very least, the Fed has done that. And like you're saying, I mean, I guess we're allowed to just answer and say it's not the case that the fed is actually stabilizing the economy and helping the downtrodden it's the other way around the reason we had the financial crisis was because the federal reserve existed so it's not that the fed's sitting back and rushing in you know when danger calls and they have to save the day the fed is caught you know the fed is starting the fires that then it's clumsily trying to put out yeah so just a side note about the the new york fed being liars I actually, uh, I'll, I'll never, uh, I'll never intentionally miss a chance to tout this. I actually caught them plagiarizing Rothbard. Do you know about this? <laughs> Why would they do that? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, way back, I think this was in like the maybe 2014 or something like that. I I'm was, just happy I was they're quoting their, Rothbard, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, I was uh, reading their blog, and they had this this little series on on economic history, and they the this uh, particular. Uh, article was on the panic of 1819 so i clicked on it and and i knew that rothbard wrote his dissertation on mm-hmm. that so i i wasn't like expecting them to cite rothbard because you know it's the fed and it's rothbard um but like as i was reading through it i i did notice that they were like using like actual like real like a few words at a time some text that was like either directly taken from panic of 1819 or like very closely paraphrased um, if they said so, that credit expansion was monstrous, that is clear cut. <laughs> that was Rothbard. So, so, but I, I did, I, I, I did catch them, and the reason I know I caught them is because they, they admitted to it. Well, I, 
I first I provided the evidence, like I showed. Here's what the New York Fed said, and here's what Rothbard said. And it's like very hang clear on. You like sent them an email, it, or you wrote it up for Mises.org or something? I, I wrote it up for Mises okay. Wire, and I guess they they saw in their internet traffic like all these people coming from Mises.org <laughs> because I provided the link to the article, and uh, they they did email me uh, saying that it was unintentional that they unintentionally uh, didn't cite Rothbard, but they did cite a few other authors. Uh-huh. So I mean, I, I'll leave that to the to the listener to decide. If, how intentional that was, but they did in, they did correct the uh, the blog post, so they they did end up citing Rothbard. Oh, I, oh so we, that's too we, bad. We it would have been a better that. story if they just removed that quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but but you so that was supposed to be just a short little cite. No, that's great. Um, that's the best part of the episode. Um, all right, so you can <laughs> um, send that to us, about, like so we can we can that? link that for the show notes of this page. You can find that the thing you wrote up. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll, that, that's amazing. Um, so. Uh, you were talking about the, like the way Congress uh, sh- like should have authority or, or ostensibly Congress should have some say in how taxpayer money is being used. And even though this is this is sort of like a strange case, because it's almost like a gift that the Fed gives to the Treasury um, and that gift has been consistent and, and a reliable source of income for the Treasury. And now they're just sort of pausing that gift. It, it's definitely and it's definitely the case where it, like this is going to have some some substantial uh, like budget implications for for the treasury and for the federal government, and this is uh, a point that uh, that Pollock and his co-author I don't don't know exactly how to pronounce his name is like Kupiak maybe uh, in a letter to the editor responding to the Furman article that you that you already cited, they said who authorized the Fed to take an enormous interest rate bet risking taxpayer money? Nobody but the Fed itself does quote independence give the Fed the right to spend hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars without congressional approval? That question needs to be debated. And that's how they concluded their letter to the editor. Um, and I think it, I think it's a valid point. And I think that it hints at, at what, what some of the broader implications of Fed losses uh, will be. And I think what we might see, I'm, I'm not making like a hard prediction here, but what we might see is we might see some people in Congress start to take a closer look uh, because like if people are making this claim that, and I think it's true that the Fed is now costing the taxpayer, that they're like their actual f- fiscal implications of what the Fed is doing, it means that Congress needs to take a closer eye. And so like I know the Fed started with this authority from Congress and there's been this battle over auditing the Fed over the years. Um but I think I think this could generate some more interest in, among people in Congress, and I don't even think it'll be that partisan. Like I could I could see like Democrats and Republicans uh, uh, teaming up to to take a closer eye at what's going on in the Fed, especially since it it does have a, a, a an impact on on taxpayer money. So there, there's that element, and and one other thing, I'm, I'm, we might not have time to get to it in this episode, but I think that if if that be if it becomes the case that the Fed's taking this reputational hit because of how much they're costing the taxpayer, I think they might be looking at some very unconventional ways to to get uh, profits back. And so you were talking about the different things that are on the liability side of, of, the, of the Fed's balance sheet, including uh, bank reserves and and uh, the reverse repos that they do. But one thing is the currency. And, and so paper currency is a liability of the Fed that they pay zero interest on. And one thing that they could implement um, sooner or later that, that would be another no interest or possibly no interest or even negative interest liability would be a central bank digital currency. So I think if, 
if this does have reputational implications for the Fed, I think that they might be looking at a CBDC and thinking, hey, this could this could get us out of our tough spot because then we could start issuing these digital dollars that have that have no no interest. So it's not going to cost us and we could start going back to, to paying um, the Treasury for our net earnings. That was a lot. In no, there. I like it. I like it. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of things to cover. So here, let me jot it down because otherwise I'm going to forget. Um Okay. Yeah. On the, the, your first point or one of the first points, uh, amongst your points were such diverse elements as, um, the, <laughs> the one about, uh, the Congress, you're right. I, I think it's, we have to remind people that the people listening to this podcast know a lot about central banking, you know, how money works and stuff like that way more than the average person. And I want to remind people that before the financial crisis of 2008, the Federal Reserve was a very boring topic, okay? It was only after the QE program started and people like Glenn Beck were like showing um, graphs of the Fed's balance sheet and like he was on a forklift because the thing, you know, and just shot way up starting in the fall of 2008. And so he had to, you know, he went in the show and then he like had the forklift lifting him up to, to show the spike in the thing. And people were talking about hyperinflation and what, so... It was only because of that that Ben Bernanke went on 60 Minutes to explain to people like, oh, no, 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 this is not this is fine. And the guy said, well, I mean, if it starts getting out of hand, you can stop it. And he was like, like that, you know, and just telling people that. Um, so now it's a very slow snapping of the fingers uh, because it took several years for the Fed to get the CPI inflation under control. But the um, you know that so the. It, the idea of what the Fed was doing and the mechanics and the possible implication, that was a very arcane thing that only gold bugs and people, you know, Austrian nerds and stuff cared about until 2008. And then with the bailouts and all that, like that's when people really started getting interested in realizing, Hey, there's a scam going on. And I remember it was, I think it was actually, well, it's either September or October. I believe it was September of 2008. Right. So this is when the crisis hit Uh, the Fed had to, you know, Lehman and then the Fed bailed out AIG. You know, there, there was a takeover and all this stuff. And, um, and there was a meeting of, I, I don't remember which, but I think it was Barney Frank was in the room, right? Because I, I kind of remember the exchange and the reading about it. I wasn't there. They didn't invite me. But Bernanke's sitting at this table explaining to people, here's what we're doing. You know, this is right in September 2008 when everyone thinks ATMs are going to stop working. And so he was explaining to people, and I forget the number. I want to say it was eighty-five billion, but maybe I'm, you know, filling that in because that's a number that was relevant to something else. But it was a big number in terms of here's what the Fed's doing so far, and then we're considering further action. And the the other guy at the table, who I believe was Barney Frank, but somebody big, I think it was Barney Frank, said, "Where are you getting the eighty-five billion from? Do you have that?" And you know, and, and he said, well, we're the Federal Reserve. We have $850 billion. right? So some of the details, might, but the spirit of what I just said is definitely what happened. And I remember when I read that and I was thinking, oh, Barney Frank doesn't understand how central banking works. Like he's still of the mm -hmm. mentality that, oh, yeah, we throw around a lot of money up here in Washington, but it has to come from somewhere. You know, I'm on the appropriations committee. I got to appropriate the, the money. I, you know, we're not on the counterfeiting committee. We're not on the, you know, open market <laughs> operations committee. <laughs> so that's just his question to say, 
where you get it. You know, I mean, he's probably worried. Like, wait, are you are you drawing it from some of my spending? What, you know, what, my budget. What are you doing? Where are you getting that money from? And just that, like, really drove home for me that they don't understand. And I'm not saying that to make fun of Barney Frank. I meant, oh, even Barney Frank doesn't know. Like, because I, yeah, I know yeah. we can make jokes about it. You know, Rush Limbaugh used to make fun of him and whatever for obvious reasons. But that's no Barney Frank. I, in case people don't, I've, I've testified on committees like where he was the chair. Like it's, he's not a stupid guy. He understands how Washington works. That's why he rose through the ranks. And he just, that question was, you know, a freshman and he, he, you know, well, macro econ at least should, should understand that. So uh, it doesn't surprise me then that, you know, going forward, like you, like we're talking about, John, that if the fed is not giving guidance and talking about the risks of this stuff, like, yeah, that's just, the Congress would have no idea what they unleashed. And so now that they're seeing this and learning about it and hearing podcasts and where people who care, I bet a lot of them are outraged. And, you know, especially like the people on the left that you can imagine, you know, if you're AOC or people like that, and you're seeing how much the fed is paying. And yet when they try to go get money for their pet projects, the Republicans, Oh, we, we can't afford for the taxpayer, you know, and it's, like the whole thing, it's I can see that, yeah, there's probably a fight coming. And unfortunately, too, with all the MMT stuff that people are now primed on the left to believe we have this fount of free money. We could be sending people to you know Mars. We could be doing a Green New Deal. We could do all this stuff magically and there would be no pain. And it's just the people running this system right now are the greedy bankers. And why don't we just sweep them aside and have the people take over the issuance of money and then everything will be great. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think you're totally on point there. I I think that we, we could definitely see a battle in Congress, uh, not, not necessarily between Congress people, but, but between Congress and the fed. And uh, if, if the fed is is going to incur all of these losses, I think I, I could definitely see people on both the left and the right wanting to to take a closer look. And and I think so this is what people mean by the Fed's independence. So like the the Fed doesn't like have to uh, run every one of their decisions by Congress, even though they're, they're an agency that was authorized by Congress. They're, they're sort of set apart. They can they can run their own show. Um, they they don't have uh, like a congressional audit like the I know uh, the Fed does publish their own audited uh, financial reports, but it's it's done by themselves um, and, and then and then published for other people to see. But the, but the point is, I think Congress Congress might want to start taking a look because they see that this is now impacting the taxpayer. And of course, Congress congressmen and congress congresswomen will want to will want to say what the fed can and can't do now that it's impacting the taxpayer um and so uh, people might say that so that, like this threatens the uh, the fed's independence and that's a bad thing um i'm not i so it's like a it's sort of like a catch-22 like if the fed isn't independent it's not doing its own thing it means it's subject to congress and so who do i have more trust in the fed by itself or do i have more trust in congress and i think that's sort of like the wrong question to ask i'm just trying to be descriptive and thinking about what's what what could happen as a result of a loss in confidence in the fed uh, more broadly yeah you're really hitting great points here because i had the same misgivings you know it's I feel strongly on both accounts um, or both that <laughs> yes, other things equal put a gun to my head and say, someone's going to run the federal reserve. Do you want it to be Jay Powell or AOC? I guess Jay Powell. 
But on the other hand, Jay Powell running the Fed is not a good system. And, you know, this is not sustainable. And so I think in particular that, yeah, the people on the left, when they're seeing, because it was one thing when the Fed was doing its sleepy operations and there was the financial crisis and everybody was saying how ATMs were going to stop working and your life insurance policies weren't going to pay out and stuff. And then the Fed came in, did some stuff, and then it seemed like everything was okay, at least in terms of the financial sector. And, you know, price inflation wasn't going through, you know, people were worrying about it. And guys like Paul Krugman were like, oh, don't listen to them. They're idiots. And it looked like he was right, right? Everything seemed okay. Gasoline didn't go to $10 a gallon. Oh, okay. Maybe, okay. That's one thing. But then now, when you price inflation, you know, in terms of CPI and whatever is bad, Americans are really upset. It's clearly the worst price inflation since the late 70s, early 80s. And all the stuff has come out the Fed losing billions of dollars. And the money that used to go to the Treasury is not going to be forthcoming for seven plus years. Then I can see them saying, okay, yeah, this has got to stop. We authorized you to do such and such. This, And also, too, imagine, Jonathan, you know, I think a bad recession is coming. And so imagine mm-hmm. if you got all this going on and unemployment goes up to 8%, you know, then, then you're, I don't think the forces on the left in Congress are going to still be like, okay, yeah, you guys know what you're doing. Go ahead. Cause yeah, we, we, we don't, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. So back when it was technocrats and they, in other words, just like that machine scared the heck out of the American public to go ahead and not and keep their mouths shut with the bailouts and everything. And I know, folks, the ballots involved the Treasury taking ownership, not, you know, the, the Fed was doing its thing on the side. Um, those are two separate things. Um, but, yeah, the public was kind of cowed into submission because, like, oh, my gosh, they, you know, the smart people on TV are telling me the world was going to collapse, and I don't want the world to collapse, so okay. They they did that to Congress, too, right? They scared the people going, you know, who were freshmen. And they, don't, they don't know what's going on. They don't want to be at the helm when everything collapses. So... But at this point, like they've caught on to those tricks as well and, and starting to see that, oh, wait a minute, these these are not the smartest guys in the room. And so, I, yeah, I think a big battle like that's coming. And just to go back to what you said, too, with the um, CBD stuff, at the back when the QE programs were first kicking in, some of us were wondering, is this are they doing this on purpose to crash the dollar to bring in? you know, like the, the, the Amero or something, you know, cause like there had always been for a long time claims by some extremist people that, oh yeah, they want to get us on, you know, a one world currency and this kind of stuff. And so when they were doing moves that at the time seemed incredibly reckless and like, yeah, this threatens the, the long-term fate of the U S dollar to try to come up with, why would they do that? Are they that stupid? You know, again, one theory was maybe they're doing it precisely to wean Americans off of the dollar to get them into something else. But I, I like what you're saying here that whether intentionally or not, one outgrowth of this could be that, you know, they, they use this as a vehicle to, to get people to adopt something, a new system that gives the fed more direct control over their, over commerce, but without uh, it appearing to be forced on them. Like the people saying, Oh no, we want that. Please, please save us from this current crisis that you created. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the impending recession because one other uh, thought that I had, and I think I alluded to this earlier, it's probably in one of my long spiels that went many different directions, um, is 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 the question, do the Fed losses indicate something about the broader financial sector? 
And I think that they do. I, I don't think that this is the case where the Fed has taken a big hit so that the private sector doesn't, which was ostensibly the case in uh, 2008 when they started taking on the mortgage-backed securities. Uh, in, in this case, I think the, the Fed's balance sheet looks a lot like uh, everybody else's balance sheet. Uh, and, and so if we see that the Fed has these massive losses, it's not that they're substituting losses so that there aren't losses in the, in the private sector. It's the case where the Fed is in the same position as all of these other financial institutions where they, they have assets uh, like mortgages and, and, and other things that are long dated and they bought them when interest rates were low. And now on their liability side, uh, the, the things that they're paying interest on are shorter term and have higher interest rate. And, and so really all of the other financial institutions are in a, in a similar situation as the Fed, uh, in, not, if not similar, almost exactly the same. And I think, I think that this is what that means is that we can take the Fed's insolvency as an indication, another indication that, uh, you know, the, the picture isn't so rosy, uh, looking, looking ahead. Mm -hmm. No, very good points. Um, I will mention folks, if you really had been paying attention earlier, Jonathan said to me, now, some people might be wondering, Bob, is the Fed taking losses so people in the private sector don't have to suffer them? What do you think? And I didn't answer his question. And so he, now he just had to answer his own question. He gave me a chance. <laughs> I didn't answer it. And now he found, OK, I got to do everything. I got to carry this show. But I also <laughs> snuck in a reference to Batman that you didn't uh, take advantage of. So I, I was asking, if the, is the Fed the uh, hero that we need, but not the one that we deserve? And you, you didn't uh, take that one either. So, you know, that I've I've seen that meme so much or you know used so much I forgot that that was a reference to Batman, if you get what I'm saying. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? To me, that's just now like, oh yeah, that's a U.S. saying. So okay, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that probably means it's time for us to wrap this up. Uh, joking aside, thank you, Jonathan. This this helped clarify my own thinking on on these matters, and I hope it uh, helped the, the listeners as well. So thank you as usual for your time, Jonathan, and your insights. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Bob. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We appreciate that there are people like you who care about these arcane matters that, as we've seen, if you've been studying this stuff, reading Rothbard for years, it now really does matter. And so you're equipped. You're not going to fall for these things. You know more about central banking than Barney Frank did, and so that's why you were not surprised by what's happened. And keep tuning in to get more insights and guidance on the future. See you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.